Thank you, Paul. Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I, I wonder how much you quote the Bible in everyday life. I don't mean learning verses off by heart and reciting them, and I don't actually mean either using the rather ornate language of the authorized version, O Lord, if thou wouldest in thy mercy incline thine ear unto me and be gracious unto me, that sort of thing, though there may be a place for all of that. But I mean, it's surprising how much of the Bible is quoted day by day, and people don't realize they're doing it. You hear it on television, you hear it in the shops, and we do it ourselves, perhaps not knowing that we're doing it. And I jotted down a few things that people say, for example, perhaps even not realizing that they're in the Bible. He's a law unto himself. Romans chapter 2. He's a man, uh, he has a friend after his own heart. He's the apple of my eye. I'm at my wit's end. Psalm 107. It's a case of the blind leading the blind. Matthew 15. He did that by the, he escaped by the skin of his teeth. Skin of his teeth. Or what about, it's just a drop in a bucket. That's in the Bible. That's Isaiah 40. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I heard somebody saying that the other day about some crime or other on the television. Well, I believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the woman said on television. You probably saw it yourself. He gave up the ghost. Luke 23. Well, the handwriting's on the wall, sometimes people say. There's no peace for the wicked. How about that one? That's Isaiah 48 and elsewhere, by the way. Red sky at morning, in the morning. Shepherd's warning, yes. It's a sign of the times. Matthew 16. Doesn't suffer fools gladly. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Or, um, there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes. Or, this something happened in the twinkling of an eye. Well, we use the Bible all sorts of ways and all sorts of times and uh, lots and lots of quotes. I could have given you a lot more than those. But it's surprising how little phrases from the Bible have crept into our everyday life and perhaps people use them without even knowing where they come from. And uh, there's one that's not quoted quite so much, but uh, this one here. Can a leopard change its spots? That's Jeremiah. Can a leopard change its spots? Of course, it's not really talking about leopards. It's talking about people. Is it really possible for people to completely change? Is what's being said here. Now, it's an important question because... Often, we live in an an if-only world. If only my husband was different. If only he was more loving. If only he was a kinder person. If only he was richer. If only he was more thoughtful. If only he was better looking. If only he was brainier. Not to be sexist. If only she was better looking. If only she was more sympathetic, and so on and so on. We live in an if-only world because we would like people to change. 
But we do it about ourselves. If only I was different. We want our own selves to be different. And it's that that the marketing people use all the time when they're advertising things. They appeal to that sort of if-only sense that we have. And retailers depend upon that feeling that you have and I have. If we were all completely satisfied, then advertising would make no difference. But because we want to change, advertising is effective and brings about changes. I don't know whether you know, but if you're past 15 years old, they say, less than 5% of your clothes will wear out. Less than 5%. The rest are all changed because you're fed up with it. You don't like the color of it. You want to be more fashionable. Everybody else has got it, and so on and so on. That's why we change our clothes, to stay in fashion. And I'm bored with what I've got. And if only I was, dot, 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 is how we think today. If only I looked different. If only I could lose weight. If only I was more athletic. Only I didn't get depressed. A thousand and one different ways we might think about it. But it's not just our looks. I mean, psychological change. If only I didn't worry so much. If only I was more secure as a person. If only I could relax more. Or what about social change? If only we had more real friends. If only we had less loneliness. If only I lived somewhere else. And we live about wanting to change at that level. Economically, of course, it's easier to see. If only I had more money. So we're living in an if-only society. And consequently, we worry. I read some while back, 85% of the things that we worry about never happen. So we might as well not worry about them. And of the rest, 10% you can't do anything about. So you might as well not worry about them either, because you can't do anything about it. And only 5% of the things that we worry about, can we change in any way at all? I was at school one day, taking lessons in the school, and the headmaster said to me, I don't know why you're doing this, he said, because uh, you are the way you are. People don't change. That's what they're like. That's what they will always be like. They don't change. So talking about changing people is a waste of time, is what he said to me. But at the heart of the Christian message is the conviction, in fact, also the evidence, that change really is possible. We really can be changed, be different. Tomorrow can be a new day for you. The advertisers, for especially things like insurance, talk about new for old. And you take out an insurance so that when something goes wrong, you don't just get the value of the thing that has been broken or lost, but you get the value of replacing it new, new for old. But that, in fact, is God's promise. A new life for the old life. Nowhere else can you look in the world to find where you can exchange the old life and have a brand new life. Now, before we get on to what the Bible says about this, think for a minute how this dominates, this new for old and this change dominates our thinking. Every day, millions of things are advertised for one need, but actually, they're meeting another need. For example, food. Here's a McDonald's advert. 
can't quite see it from there, McDonald's advert, and it's an advert for their premium roast coffee. It's coffee that presumably is taken to satisfy thirst because we need liquid, but it's advertisers waking us up in the morning and getting us going. And it might do that, of course. Or there's, here's one for Heineken. Heineken, it'll help you relax. (laughs) So it's advertising relaxation, but actually it's a drink. So it's advertising one thing, but actually something else is the clue. Or, or what about this? You might like your Jimmy Choo shoe, shoes. Well, some of you might like your Jimmy Choo shoes. They're advertised as good shoes, but they're not good shoes at all. <laughs> they're terrible shoes. They're painful to wear, I'm told. Not that I wear them too often, but they're, they're painful to wear. They're not very good at all. If you were wanting good shoes, you'd buy something like this. Well, if you want to be more fashionable, you buy them like this. <laughs> because they're good shoes. If that's what you're wanting, shoes. But when you're buying your Jimmy shoes, you're actually buying a style. You're buying feelings. And you're buying fitting in with society or whatever it is. That's what you're buying. You're not buying shoes. Because if you bought shoes, you'd buy something like that. you buy Doc Martens, which both of those are, by the way. And you don't see many adverts for Doc Martens around the place, though there are some. Now, you may be saying, well, that's all very well, but what's this got to do with me? Well, the answer is everything. For the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ include the fact that we can, we will be changed when you become a Christian. You will be changed. There is such a thing as new for old when it comes to the gospel. This is how Paul put it in our reading. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's how it puts it. Now, as far as this verse is concerned, you could say there are three things that bring about complete change. First of all, there's a new position. We are in Christ. Secondly, there is a new personality. We're a new creation. And thirdly, there's new potential. The new has come. Everything changes when we're in Christ. But the logical question that arises from that is, if that's the case, then how can it be realized in my life? How can it actually come about in my life? Now, here are a few things to mention. First of all, you cannot have any permanent change or anything new until the old has been dealt with. You cannot have the new till the old's dealt with. And I'm not talking here about what we as Christians refer to often as repentance. Repentance is important, and the Bible speaks about repentance quite a lot and so on, but this is something more radical than even repentance. In fact, repentance doesn't lead to a new life at all. It's the product of a new life. But here, I'm saying that before you can have the the new, the old must be dealt with. See, that verse that we quoted, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, the creation, the old has passed, the new has come, starts with the word, therefore. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we read about earlier, if you look back in a few verses earlier, the, the context of Paul saying that, the therefore, refers to the previous verses, which are all about Jesus dying for us. 
many people in this if-only world would like to change, but they don't realize that before they can change, something really radical has to take place. You have to die. That's it. You can't have the new until the old dies. And Paul says that we're included in the death of Christ. The cross saves people like us who are sinners. The cross saves sinners because it slays sinners. We died in Christ. Now, let me just give you an illustration here. You come home from work one day and you find your house is flooded. We came back from holiday once and found our house flooded. Carpets were all floating. It's a long while ago now, but it happened. But you come back from work one day, your house is flooded. And the bath tap has been left on. And somehow or another, the bath has overflowed and it had flowed through the bathroom and then through the ceiling and so on. And so you frantically grab a mop and begin mopping up. There seems to be no chance in clearing up the mess. And so you go and get a bigger mop, a much bigger mop, and start mopping up with a much bigger mop, more effective mop. But still, the same thing continues. And so you go down to the local college and enroll in a course called Successful Mopping Up. And you go through, through a course of Successful Mopping Up to learn how to do it much better. And you receive at the end of it a diploma with a gold seal on it because you've been such a good student. But the water still flows and the house remains flooded. And so you think to yourself, well, I'm useless at this mopping up. What I need is a professional mopper-upper. So you call, you get out your yellow pages and look up for professional mopper-uppers. And the professional mopper-uppers come up and start telling you what to do. And they do, they appear at your house for a week of intensive mopping up. And they measure their success. And they measure their success by the number of gallons per hour that they manage to mop up. And they give you this in written form. How successful they are or are going to be. But the situation continues to get worse. And uh, you eventually dedicate yourself and decide that you will give the rest of your life to assessing and developing better mopping up techniques because there surely must be hundreds of people in the world who need this. And so you seek to develop it. And you vow that you will never, ever leave the tap on again. And finally, very weary and waterlogged, you decide that you are never intended to live in a dry house. And so you buy galoshes and big wellingtons and settle down in your waterbed and decide that you'll just live with it because that's the way it is. But you don't really need me to apply it, do you? You see, the way we live, the sinful lives that we live, the behavior that we have, you know, we want to get rid of it, so we try to get rid of it, and we employ other people to help us get rid of it, and so it goes on and on and on, when actually what you need is somebody to go upstairs and turn the tap off to stop it happening. And the fact of our sinful life, the new life cannot be ours until somebody deals with the old life. You may be somebody who has for years wondered why the Christian life doesn't seem to work out in your own experience. 
That's because you're trying to do it. When actually that's what's not what is needed. If you want to be free from sin, whatever form it is, lies or bitterness, I tell you this much, it cannot be done until you die. Cannot be done. You and your sin are inseparable. They are linked together. They are tied together inseparably until you die. So the, you cannot go back to the old without dying. And you cannot go back to dying without Christ. Because the dying what took place in Christ. And Paul repeatedly through the New Testament and other writers too says, I was crucified with Christ. That's where I died, with Christ. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you have died with Christ, he says in Colossians. For you have died with Christ, he says elsewhere in Colossians. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 6, Romans 6 verse 8, now we have died with Christ. Again and again he's saying that when Christ died, I died. So if I want the new life, if I want my sin being dealt with and those areas of life that I dislike, it's not a case of me trying to do it because they're in set, the old is inseparably linked with us until we die. What we need to do is to realize that we have died in Christ. When Christ died, I died in him. And you can go further than that. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But when it dies, it brings forth much fruit. There has to come the time when we recognize that when Christ died, I was in Christ, and his death was my death because I was in Christ, and when he died, I died. That takes place. Of course, when Jesus was alive, crucifixion was a terrible form of death. And uh, Jesus said to the, his disciples, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Let's go. He wasn't saying, I want you to have this as an image in front of you. He wasn't saying, I want you to use this as an ornament. He wasn't saying, I want you to recognize even that I died. What he's saying is, I want you to pick up your cross and take it because taking your cross means that you are going to die. So having realized that Christ died for you, you begin to reckon, recognize that in Christ you died. And day by day you're recognizing that you are dead because Christ died and you were in him. The next thing is your death with Christ saves you therefore from the penalty of sin. If you died with Christ, then there is no penalty for sin. That's one of the wonderful things about being a Christian that you needn't worry about the future and the penalty of sin because you've died. And there could be no penalty for those who have died. You're already dead in Christ. I suppose you could put it like this, that 
because Christ, what, what's important in our dying in this way is to recognize the time of death. When did the time of death take place? When did it happen? It's easy to live life trying to die to ourselves and even praying, Lord, help me to crucify the old self and so on. But you can't die to yourself. And the reason you can't die to yourself because if you're in Christ, you died 2,000 years ago. This may sound very complicated, but that's what the Bible says. In Christ, you died, so your death was 2,000 years ago. Knowing this, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with him. When he died, we died 2,000 years ago. See, God sees us either in Christ or in Adam. And if he sees us in Christ, he sees us as dead to sin. And that saves us from the penalty of sin. Because you can't punish someone who's already dead. Imagine a bank robbery taking place and the police with their sirens screeching pull up outside the bank and there are witnesses there and they say to the witnesses, do you know who did it? Somebody says, yeah, I know who did it. I recognize the person who did it. Who was it? It was Henry VIII. Henry VIII, well, Henry VIII died on the 28th of January, 1547. So how can it be Henry VIII? Can't be because he's dead. So Henry VIII can't possibly be accused of that crime because he died a few centuries ago. Consequently, when we died in Christ, we cannot be accused. We cannot be punished for our sin because we died in Christ 2,000 years ago. So we're free from the charge that sin, sin brings. And we're free from the control that sin exercises when we realize we died in Christ. So Paul goes on to say, because you're dead, just recognize it. Consider yourself dead. That's how he puts it. So your death with Christ saves you from the penalty of sin, and reckoning yourself dead saves you from the power of sin. See, the power of sin only appeals to you if you don't recognize that you're dead. If you recognize that Christ died for you and you are in Christ, then sin has nothing to appeal to. When Paul puts, wrote it, he put it like this in Romans chapter 6, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God, or reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That word reckon or count, of course, is an accounting term. In bookkeeping, bookkeepings are based upon facts, not fables or fictions, Hopefully. The fact is you're dead, so depend on it, reckon on it, act on it. Live as if you're a dead person, so that sin can't even appeal to you. I used an illustration once before, when Watchman, Watchman Nee has in his book, The Normal Christian Life, in which he said he was once on a train, and... Um, He'd recently become a Christian, and as he went down the train for this long journey, he noticed a group of people, they were actually old friends of his, sitting there, three of them, and they were playing a card game, and actually they needed four people. And they said to Watchman Nee, will you join us for this gambling game, this card game of gambling? And he said, no, I'm ever so sorry, I can't. And they said, why not? It's a long journey. He said, because I haven't brought my hands with me. And they, they said, what do you mean? What are those things on the end of your arms then? 
He said, oh, these are not mine now. My hands died. These ones don't belong to me. So I can't play. He was right. He died in Christ 2,000 years ago. Therefore, he reckoned that his hands were no longer his. And therefore, he couldn't sin in that gambling. And that's how we live a new life. And brand new life is possible when we recognize that we died in Christ. And consequently, we count on it and act on it. That we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. And that's why Jesus said, take up your cross daily. doesn't mean that literally we go and die daily physically, but we remember, we reckon day by day in every circumstance that we are dead in, we died in Christ. So this verse that we're thinking about is a wonderful verse. Therefore, because Christ died, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So Paul says, so do not go on presenting the members of your body, your hands and feet, and so on, the members of your body, as members to unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead, and members and instruments of righteousness to God. A new life is possible. There is new for old in what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth. And although sometimes it's hard for us to grasp it, we pray that you will help us today to not only know it with our heads but with our hearts that we died because you died. And if we're in Christ, we have died to our old life. And help us day by day to count on that so that we live the new life we have in Christ Jesus. We know there will come a time when we shall stand before you and we shall see you as Savior and Lord if we made our, put our trust in yourself. And We pray therefore that you will help us today to open our lives and commit our hearts and lives into your hands that we might be in Christ so that your death was our death. Help us day by day to live a new life in Christ Jesus for the glory of your name and for our blessing, joy, and satisfaction. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's sing together a song as we finish.